Well, good morning, everybody. I feel a little off kilter because I spent some of the weekend at Glen Lake Camp with Bible Camp, and I was reminded why I was always drawn to youth ministry more than to children's ministry. But God is good, and uh, no children were harmed in the volunteering of this guy at Bible Camp. So, please pray with me. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, because God, you are our strength, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. Do you believe people can change? I mean, actually change. Now, if you don't, then this question is useless, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Have you ever changed? What, what counts as change? Have you changed for the good? Have you changed for the bad? Have you done a little bit of both over your life? Now, imagine you're a slave, and somebody else has absolute, utter, total control or claim over you. I mean, you have no rights, you have no privileges, except that can be taken away without even a moment's notice. Have you ever experienced powerlessness? I think it's important now to add that feeling powerless isn't exactly the same as being powerless, but I don't want to get bogged down on the distinction because um, I think it's the responsibility of followers of Jesus to respect other people's feelings of powerlessness rather than tell them, oh no, you're not powerless. And one of the things about feeling powerless is that having this genuine lack of an ability to see that there's a good way out. Because fighting won't do it. Arguing won't do it. Begging won't do it. But praying will. Because God always hears the prayer of the needy. God always has and God always will. If you're feeling powerless in any way, I hope you get that. But today we get to see that even in the Old Testament, that God's ways aren't our ways and our thoughts aren't God's thoughts, which is actually from Isaiah 55. By the way, to make it perfectly clear, God is speaking to God's people in Isaiah here. Sometimes we as God's people pull out uh, like Isaiah 55, 8, and 9 where it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Sometimes we pull that kind of thing out of context and kind of lord it over other people, you know, unbelieving people. But God says this to God's own people. There's this, this phrase in the, in the world of philosophy. I know you didn't come here for philosophy this morning but I, I think this works. The phrase is epistemic humility, which you may or may not ever remember. There's not a test at the end. But what it means is that even though we know what we know and whatever confidence we have in what we know and we believe that what we know is true and correct and accurate, the epistemic humility means that we also know that we're finite beings 
And so we don't have it all figured out. We haven't settled everything. And that we're, we're humble enough to admit that we might not have the final answer. Now, for Christians, and not just we're humble. Christians, we realize we're also fallen. So we know that even our reasoning doesn't work perfectly. So whatever we know, we know with full confidence because we are the people of God. God has spoken to us. But we also know that whatever we know right now is not exactly what we knew 10 years ago, and it's not exactly what it will be 10 years from now because we change. We're all in the process of growing and changing. We know that 10 years from now won't be exactly like it is today. God willing. Because in one sense, anytime we make a claim about something 10 years from now, we're depending on God willing. Because God doesn't promise us 10 years from now. God didn't promise us tomorrow. But God has, God has promised to be at work in our lives today. It's the only day we have and today, God has promised to be at work in our lives. And so today, God is working in us to conform us to the image of Jesus. And God is working in us that, as Paul wrote in Romans, that by the renewing of our minds, we'll be transformed so that we can prove what God's will is. And God's doing all that today. And God did that in us yesterday. And the good news is not that that we already know everything we'll need to know, but we already trust the only God we'll ever have to trust. And the God that we know, the God that we trust, is so good and so faithful that, that we trust that God's going to continue to work in us. God's going to continue to grow us because none of us is yet entirely or perfectly conformed to the image of the Son. So God is still working on us to do those things. So, our lives and the world around us continue to throw challenges up to God's efforts to conform us to the image of His Son, to renew our minds so that we can be transformed. How does God work with all these things? A little history lesson to bring us up to the, the now part of this 11-week series. How did God face the challenge of Adam and Eve both rebelling and choosing knowledge because the serpent promised them knowledge if they ate the fruit of this one tree, and they chose knowledge over trusting God. Well, God approached that challenge by walking up to Adam and Eve and talking to them and continuing to love them. So, how did God face the challenge of Jacob practicing his incredibly gifted manipulation of other people and circumstances to suit him and to help him come out on top? God approached that by wrestling with Jacob, by not letting go of him. Hang on to that picture of God not letting go of us. How did God deal with Moses, who was a, a fugitive murderer who wasn't sure he could trust God to do what God asked him to do? You might have been in this kind of situation before. You get this clear message from God that you're to do something, and you don't think you can do it. You don't want to do it. You're just like Moses. You offer God several excellent excuses, and yet... If God wants you to do something, God enables and empowers you to do exactly what God wants you to do. 
And then how did God deal with the people in the wilderness? You remember this story. Through Moses, God led all the Hebrew people, all of God's people, out of slavery, out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness on their way to the land that's been promised to them. God has just delivered them from slavery with, with mighty acts and signs and wonders. And, and they had to do nothing to overpower Pharaoh except follow what God said. And the next day, Exodus tells us, they're grumbling. And some of them are even wishing they could go back to Egypt. Because, yeah, they were slaves, but they got three hot meals a day. How did God handle that? Mostly with patience. Mostly with patience. But if we're honest, we remember some of these stories. I haven't mentioned these because it's an 11-week series and we're going through 39 books of the Bible. But in some of those stories, God doesn't have patience. And God talks to Moses and says, Moses, I'm tired of these people. I'm going to go kill them and then you and I will start over. And Moses talks God out of that. Now, some people might see those stories. Um, specifically, two of them are in Exodus 32 and Numbers 14, if you want to check into those. Um, some people say those stories show, show the weakness of our scriptures and maybe the weakness of our faith and, and how our faith is just like this leftover religion from primitive people that didn't know any better. But I think what this shows is how great our story is and how faithful our God is that even though we don't understand and then when we do understand, we don't still really understand and even more than that, it shows us that throughout this series that, that what God really wants with us is a relationship. And if you're in a, a real meaningful relationship, sometimes you get tired of whoever it is you're in the relationship with. And in case that makes you feel all good about yourself, sometimes they get tired of you too. But the relationship means you don't give up and walk away. So the last segment of the story was, was about obedience. We have a word for each week of this series, and the last one was obedience. So God's people have been completely delivered from slavery. They've been cared for they've even been fed every day they come out of their tents and that day's food is on the ground for them for 40 years and then god gives them this land that god had promised to them and their taking possession of the land only required their obedience they didn't have to overpower anybody they didn't have to outsmart anybody they just had to obey god and they took possession of this land that god had for them and still at the end of that time the book of the Judges is, in, is concluded with these words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. Since there was no king in Israel, they needed a king, right? The answer is yes and no and not exactly. Because we get from 1 Samuel, and I think this was in what Julia read for us this morning, that what God wanted was to be the king. But what the people wanted was they looked around and saw everybody else had kings, so we want a king too. We want to be just like everybody else. And I hope you can kind of admit 
that this makes sense? I mean, we're inclined to trust our own senses and our own reason. And well, some of us probably fancy ourselves a little more spiritual than that. We're spiritual in ways that make sense to us. For example, have you ever felt the Spirit's presence in a service of worship? I mean, for me, it usually happens probably because, you know, the part of the service that isn't music is when I'm talking. So uh, for me, I usually feel the Spirit's presence mostly somewhere in the midst of music. And I, I feel like God is here and, and God encourages me and comforts me and makes me feel like I'm glad I got up for worship this morning. Or I'm, I'm glad I made the connection on Facebook sometime. And I feel the Holy Spirit's presence. And we've, we've learned to put it in those exact words. If we feel particularly touched in a, in a song or even just one line of a song, it's like we feel like the Holy Spirit is present there. And I'm not one to deny that because the Holy Spirit is the comforter. The Holy Spirit is our advocate. And if you've ever had a deep sense of God's goodness and presence, absolutely, one way to, to, to talk about that as Christians is that the Holy Spirit has moved. But like they say on TV, but wait, there's more. I believe that one of the most basic manifestations of the Holy Spirit is comfort but we're way too comfortable as people to think that all the Holy Spirit wants to do with us on Sunday morning is make us comfortable. I mean, you've probably heard this saying that God comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. We're a comfortable church. Most of us live comfortably especially the parts of our lives that we let each other see because there's always the parts of our lives that we like keep hidden on Sunday mornings. We present ourselves as comfortable people with comfortable jobs or comfortable pensions and comfortable families and comfortable houses and comfortable communities with comfortable storage units full of comfortable stuff that we don't have room for in our houses anymore. So if all God had for us was a sense of comfort, we wouldn't need God anymore. We've got comfort down. But I believe if the Holy Spirit is present in our worship, we'll be comforted and we'll be encouraged, but we'll also be challenged. So if all you get out of a worship service is this great feeling of comfort in God's presence, but no challenge, then I'm not sure the best way to explain that is that the Holy Spirit was there. I think if the Holy Spirit's here and if we and, and the Holy Spirit gets our attention, then we get something more than just feeling great about how good the music was. We get challenged in some way. Because if you leave a worship service and say, yeah, I feel really good. God is awesome. I'll just stay this way. Then I don't think you've experienced the actual full presence of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's okay to be comfortable Everybody wants to be comfortable, right? And we, 
we want to be like everybody else. If all they want is to be comfortable, that's what we want too. So maybe like God's people in Samuel's day, maybe we really do want to be like everybody else. We all want to be comfortable. I mean, we're like everybody else in that we think and act like our comfort is on us, that we're responsible for us, that our comfort comes to us dependent on our own hard work, on the sweat of our brow, maybe a good turn of events, a little bit of luck here, somebody reaching out to us once in a while, but mostly it's on us, and we got ourselves comfortable. And as I thought about God's people so far long ago wanting to be just like everybody else, and God giving into them and giving them a king. I had to wonder, I don't think God's goal is to get us comfortable. I mean, it's not like God necessarily wants to make us uncomfortable, but God's goal is not to get us comfortable. I'm not sure that God's interested in our comfort. God's goal, as we already know, is to bless all the families of the earth and God wants us to be a part of blessing all the families of the earth. And if that makes us comfortable along the way, that's awesome. But I believe, and it's been my experience, that being the people of God is uncomfortable sometimes. It's uncomfortable on the way to getting comfortable. There's this preacher thing that's been going around for some time now that goes like this. It's easier to get people out of Egypt than Egypt out of the people. That's why they spent 40 years in the wilderness, wandering, following God all the way, ostensibly learning how to live like God's people. That's why even after God gave them the victory, in all the ways they needed the victory, God gave them the land. But to really become God's people, people through whom God intends to bless all the families of the earth, they had to become different than all the other people. They needed to be changed. We've all needed to become different. We've all needed to be changed. I think it's safe to say that God isn't finished with a single one of us here today. That God's still working in us to change us. So are we going to trust God to change us? Or are we good the way we are? Because they're mutually exclusive options. I mean, we're, we're mostly comfortable, so we could be okay like this until we consider that God has more for us. God has different for us. Do you believe people can change? Have you changed? Can you think? Are you willing to admit, not, not out loud right now, I don't know if we have the time and the space for that, but... To admit to somebody else, share with somebody this week a way that you have changed. What I have in mind is a way that God has changed you. Because God's had a good bit of time with some of us. God might just be getting started with a few of us. But God's had a good bit of time with some of us. So, so there's been time for change. There's been room in our lives for God to bring change. How have you changed? I was challenged as I prepared this to 
to think of and express some ways that God has changed me. And I, I went immediately to ways that I think differently and understand differently than I did 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. But I know if it's helpful to focus on things that I think or believe. Because one of the changes that I need to make is to get out of my head and get out of it being all about what I think and what I believe. Because nobody cares what you know until they know that you care. Which is one of the things God's been teaching me the hard way. Man, I can spout, I can quote philosophers and theologians, some that I like, some that I don't, and none of that matters if I don't approach Jesus in a way, or approach people in a way like, like Jesus would. Everybody Jesus entered a conversation with knew that he cared about who they were and their situation in life. I'd like to think that a way that God has changed me, especially in my, uh, my second round of being a parent, I hope I'm a less angry person than I used to be. And it's really humbling to try to make that claim the morning at two mornings after I was scheming in my head what I would need to do to some third and fourth grade boys to get them to be quiet so I can go to sleep. And so I give God all the glory and all the credit that I did none of those things that would have been potentially emotionally damaging and or physically harmful. But I, I, I think I come home less often now than I used to with my kids feeling the need to, to like walk on eggshells because dad's angry. Because I have this vision of the life of being a follower of Jesus that means if I got that much anger in me, there's something going wrong and there's something I need to do about it. And that is not to be taken out on my kids or my wife or my church. I used to deal with my anger with, with sarcasm. And was so good at it. I think I'm still good at it. But, but I'm not proud of that fact anymore. So I try to twist that and use, use um, different things than sarcasm to express a sense of humor because I still value humor. But one of the things that I've, I've really been aware of recently that we do sometimes in Jesus' world about humor is we, we say things in fun that I think help us think poorly or less well about, about how good and beautiful God is. One thing is, um, we love to joke about, like, um, some people call it Jesus points. Like, you do something good or loving for somebody, you get Jesus points. And however funny that might be, and insider language that might be, what it does is it presumes a world where God's keeping score. And we don't believe in a world where our God keeps score. We believe in a world where God takes all these people out of slavery not because they earned it or they earned enough Jesus points, but because God loves them and heard their cry. And God didn't ask a thing of them until they were, were free and on their way. So when we talk about God getting us back for doing something wrong or keeping score with us or making it marking a good column when we do something right, we are telling 
ourselves and the world around us that we think God keeps score. And I'm, I'm not going to do that anymore, even though I can make it really funny sometimes. Because I believe people can change. But if I really believe that God can change people, I also have to admit and be open to the idea that God wants to start with this person, not all those people, not even all of you people. There, I said you people in a sermon. Doesn't that feel weird? You believe God can change people? Are you ready for God to change you? And please pray with me. God, we are grateful for your faithfulness. We're grateful that you have been faithful and good to us longer than we can remember. And that by your grace and by your love and by your truth, you are working in us to change us, that we are more your people. That though we want to be like everybody else sometimes, we want you to be at work in us to make us different. So God, we give ourselves to you and invite you to continue your efforts to make us different. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.